Um, right, this week we are in Zechariah. Zechariah even, not Zechariah, Zechariah. Um, now you can find it by basically going to the beginning of the New Testament and then literally flick a few pages back and you'll be in Zechariah. That's the quickest way to get there. Um, Once you've got that, you can kind of plunk it on your knee for a bit, and we'll read it in a minute. But it's helpful just to get there. Okay. Right, I think we're almost all in now. So while the last people are coming in, make sure you've got Zechariah. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the pew, so you can just ask someone to pass you one. And if you're not sure how to find it, they'll get it for you, I'm sure. Well, um, I wonder what you're like at saying sorry, okay? Just have a little think about that yourself. How easy does that word come to you? Um, and then when you think about how easy the sorry comes, think about who it is that it's easy to say sorry to and maybe who it's more tricky to. Now, however easy you find it, um, I think we all have kind of a bit of a history of of sorry. Um, And you might come from a family where the word sorry was never spoken. Maybe there was hurt or anger. People got cross, but sorry was not really a word that you ever heard. Or um, you might be from a family where sorry was sort of demanded from you. Say sorry. And then uh, maybe it's followed by, I will make you sorry. (laughs) Um, Or maybe um, hurtful, really, as it is, and unhelpful, kind of sorry isn't actually good enough today. Have you ever kind of come across that? And in relationships, we know that uh, the unspoken kind of sorry and or the unforgiven sorry is so damaging, isn't it? The longer that we leave it hanging there, it kind of builds, doesn't it? It comes this massive thing that everyone avoids in the house. No one wants to talk about that. We talk about everything. But actually, nothing is resolved because sorry's not been spoken and forgiveness has not been given. The kind of sorry that's really from one heart to another, we know is the biggest reconciliation kind of thing, isn't it? Without that, it can't really happen. The problem maybe is we don't always know how our sorry is going to be received. Okay. Now when we come to Jesus, we know that when we confess that we've, and we say sorry, we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be fearful of being rejected. We're not going to be asked to prove that we are sorry. Punishment will not be inflicted to make sure that we don't do it again. And we don't need to be anxious that this sin is going to be held against us. And every time we do something, that will be dragged out of the closet, as it were, and waved in front of us. Well, you said you were sorry last time, but blah, blah, blah. It's a different kind of thing, isn't it, when we come to Jesus. In 1 John, we read this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
And if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. In other words, those who think they have nothing to say sorry for, they are perfect, are deceiving themselves. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ezra and Haggai. And as we've read through it, we've been watching these Jews, these returnees, on a spiritual journey. We've seen very much typified what we see throughout the Bible, that God is a God who um, initiates our desire for him. He is the one that seeks us out. In Ezra, we saw how God turned the king's heart. It says he moved his heart, doesn't it? So God initiated it. God moved his heart to let the Israelites go. And we also read after that that he moved the heart of the Israelites to want to go home. So we see that picture of God initiating. And these um, uh, returnees, they set off... They've got their change of heart and they go home uh, seeking the promises of God, hope for the future and prosperity. And they worship. They worship. That's the first thing they do when they get back. This hope they feel of exuberant worship has come from just glimpsing what God has for them. And as Christians, we know that the time when we worship really is when we've had a little glimpse. We've caught a glimpse of God. We've caught a glimpse of what he's done for us. And too often, we come in and we just sing songs. And we haven't taken time to say, God, show me you. I want to glimpse you today. But our uh, Jews we've been following after initial start, like many believers... Um, It isn't long before the old kind of enemies of fear and despair and doubt and disappointment creep in. Um, John, the week before last, he was um, speaking to us about how in our Christian lives we often give in to these temptations. Um, It's easy to have a mind that slips back to captivity and to forget who God is. It's easy, isn't it, to get discouraged and to stop living for God. It is easy then... God prompts us, isn't it? It's then that God prompts us through friends, through books, through quietly, through his spirit. He tells us that we have a problem, that we need to respond to his love and move closer to him again. And I don't know whether you've noticed, but there is a pattern in the books that we've been reading. And the pattern is basically this. First, we see how God has called them a number of times. If you look at Haggai which is just in front of Zechariah. And you look at chapter 1 and verse 13, we get, um, sorry, in verse 7, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your words, ways. In other words, take a good look at your life. What are you living for? Where are you going? How is it going? And puts them... Um, He wants them to take a look at what's going. God puts squarely in front of them what is wrong. It's a really hard place sometimes when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and shows us what is wrong. But our heart's desire should be to have the Holy Spirit show us what is wrong. To show us what is wrong. Secondly, in this pattern, we see this in Haggai chapter 1 verse 13. 
it says at the end, I am with you, declares the Lord. And in Haggai 2 verse 4, he says this, declares, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Can you see here how God, he he kind of approaches it in two ways. He doesn't just say, this is what's wrong. Okay, because that might be a very human approach, wouldn't it? This is what's wrong. He says, this is what's wrong, but I love you. I'm with you. I haven't left you. You remember who I am. I'm the Lord Almighty. I want you to remind you of these things, but actually where you're at is not a good place. But there's a third thing, and this is the most important thing. The third thing we find in Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, he was speaking to these people at the same time as Haggai. When they got discouraged, when they didn't want to go on, when they'd kind of lost sight of what they were doing and why they were there, Zechariah and Haggai came along and they encouraged the people and that's what got them going again. And the whole time, these two prophets worked alongside them. They were encouraging them the whole time to keep going, reassuring them that God was saying, I am with you. I am with you. Give careful thought to what you're doing. I'm with you. This is what's wrong, but I'm with you. I love you. I'm the Lord Almighty. I'm the Lord of everything. I'm in control. Keep going. And the third thing is found here in, in Zechariah chapter 1. So we're going to read that bit now. And it's verses 1 to 6. So it's only a tiny little bit of scripture, but it's got a key verse in the middle of it. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechai, the son of Iddo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now and the prophets? Do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and our practices deserve just as he was determined to do. So here in this passage, um, Zechariah is is reminding them of what happened to ancestors. He's saying, look, um, they were told and told and told by prophets, return to me, return to me. They wouldn't. And God said, if you don't do this, and I'm sorry, but um, this is what's going to happen. They had a choice, didn't they? But they refused to listen. And as a result, they went into exile. But the middle of this comes God's key desire. This is what he really wants of them. He wants, what he really wants is for them to return, to return. If we look um, right at the beginning of the Bible in, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, they walk away from God. That's what happens, isn't it? It's not so much that they don't do what God wants them to say. It's just that they walk away. They don't want to do what God wants to say. They don't want God's interests. And since then, 
Throughout the Bible, we see how God pursues them. He waits for them. He pleads with them. He rescues them. He delivers them. He relents. He forgives that they might return to him. And he's saying to these guys here, what does he want? What does he want from them? He wants them to give careful thoughts to their ways. He wants to reassure them that he's with them. But he wants them to return to him. Is it to return to the land? To the building work? You might think that, mightn't you? That it's to return to the building work. Is it that he wants them to return to sacrifices or rituals or festivals? Does he want them to return to fasting or following the Torah? No. He wants them to return to him. All these things are an outworking of that. But his primary heart's desire of God is that we return to him. That our hearts return to him. When we try to draw um, close to God by doing stuff, by following those rules, enforcing rules on ourselves, we're setting ourselves up just for drudgery, aren't we? He doesn't want that for them. If our thinking is, if I do this, Jesus will like me more, then it's just meaningless. When Jesus came, he walked among these people's descendants, these guys here, the descendants of them, the Pharisee. And he constantly annoyed them because he didn't follow the rules. They thought that they were right before God, as we know. We looked at it, haven't we? We probably all say this. They thought, he annoyed them because they thought they were right when they followed the rules. They kept the rules. They weren't like their ancestors. They didn't do what people in the past had done. They were carefully following it all. And God liked them because of what they did. But Jesus told them very clearly that they were worse than the Pharisees. I'm sorry, that they were worse than sinners. That they were worse than tax collectors. And it's easy to look down on these Pharisees, these descendants of these poor guys. It's so easy to think, oh, they're so filled with rules and they were so righteous and they just self-righteous and they just thought they had it all. But if we think of one simple sentence, I'm so thankful that I'm not like. And we finish it, we know straight away that we too are a Pharisee. If we sit there and think, I'm so thankful, I'm not like. We're so great, aren't we, at comparing ourselves with others. God is practically screaming at these people. He's begging them to return to him. Just because these guys are back in the land, just because they're building the temple, doesn't make them any better than their ancestors, than those before them. But equally, at the same time, he reassures them that he loves them. He loves them. It isn't that he's standing over them like an angry father, wagging his finger or screaming that they say sorry. He loves them. He wants them to return to him, not to return to doing stuff, not to return to building the temple but to return to him, to want to be with him. Jesus told a parable 
about two men going to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like people. I'm not like other people. Whereas the tax collector stood and beat his breast and cried, save me, I'm a sinner. And when we first come to Jesus, it's really easy to cry, thank you, I'm a sinner. It's all emotional, isn't it? Because we're first there. We're tasting that grace for the first time. But we need to be careful that we don't start to drift into, thank you, Father, that I'm not like. Now, we would never say that openly, would we? But if you think, uh, when you think of people, maybe, that you see on the street, that you look down on, or you think, oh, I can't believe they're doing that, or I wouldn't treat my children like that, or, oh, why do they yell at each other, or... I can't believe they're standing on the road and they're yelling at each other. Then we know straight away that we're right there. We're right there saying, I thank you that I'm not like them. In Zechariah, the people are told to to be warned, to take note of what happened to their ancestors. Prophet after prophet went to them, but they refused to listen or pay any attention. They went to the temple They conducted their sacrifices, they went through rituals and traditions, but they were utterly dead. They were as far from God as they could go, and they simply refused to believe it. They felt that they had no reason to return. Jesus told a good parable about returning, and a good parable about a father. There were two sons in the parable, And the first one is the one we normally focus on, highlighted as the rebel. His relationship with his father is clearly bad. He can't stand to be around him. He can't stay on the farm. He's so focused on himself and his desires that he asks for his share of the inheritance, which his father, probably through selling parts of the family land, gives to him and lets him go. He doesn't forbid him. He doesn't try and control him with power. He simply lets him go. And after the son has squandered everything he had, he lays wretched in a pigsty, despairing at the mess he has made of his life. And in those moments, he has a glimpse of hope. He will return to his father and beg him to allow him to work for him as a hired hand. Perhaps just... His father could find it in his heart to allow him to at least work for him, to make up somehow for what he's done. As he approaches, his father sees him from a great distance and against every social etiquette, he literally sprints to his son, envelops him in his arms and shouts that the best robe be brought, a ring for his finger and the fattened calf be killed. It's a picture of pure grace, and that's one that we're really familiar with. We often read it, don't we, and think, oh, that's so nice. That's me. I've come to Jesus. But the father has two sons, the second son. And he's worked really hard all these years. And when he hears his younger brother has come home, has returned to his father, and how his father's treated him, he is utterly enraged. How dare he? 
I've worked all these years for nothing and I've got diddly squat given to me. The interesting thing here is that the older son is in no more of a relationship with the father than the younger son. The first is really open about it. He's the rebel. He's really easy to spot. The second, less so. He's reserved. He's worked hard. He follows the rules. He fits in. He looks every bit the part of a perfect son. But we see something in the words that he says to his father. He roughly says to his father, to his face, Look here, I've worked all these years for you and nothing has been given to me, not even a bean. The oldest son is not concerned with his father any more than the younger son is. He cares not what his father feels or his father desires or his father loves. He cares just for himself. He cares about what he will inherit, what is coming his way. And his father begs him to come to the celebrations that he set up for the younger brother. The feast that he's prepared. But the older son refuses to go. He doesn't care what will make his father happy. He has nothing of his father's heart for the children that he has lost. So as we come here today, what do we want? Do we want what the father wants or do we want what we want? Do we look at our neighbours and are secretly thankful that we're not like them? I know that I sometimes do. It's so easy for us to be Christians for a while and speak of grace, but really start to congratulate ourselves on how great we are now. This stops us praying for our neighbours. It stops us serving them. It stops us loving them. We, like the people of God before us, drift into comfortable religion, practices, going to church, reading our Bible, while drifting further and further from the Father. If you think this is just for them, in the Corinthians, Paul says, now these things occurred as examples, examples for us. And we delude ourselves if we think we are morally better than those before us. We would be like these returnees who maybe deluded themselves into thinking they were better than the people who got them into exile in the first place. As we come to a time of reflection now, we know that wherever we are, the Father is always calling us to return, to draw near to to him. He comes to ask us to come home to him. James writes, come near to God and he will come near to you. Remember, return is not going to church more, it's not reading our Bible more but return to him because seeing him, having a clearer picture of the love of the father, having a picture of the father, of wanting to be with him, that is what Jesus wants for us. If you're living without God, 
It's a sign just that you're here, that he is reaching out to you, that he is searching for you and calling you to him. And we can be confident, can't we, that when we come, whatever we feel, he is a loving father. He doesn't burst into a rage at his son. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, I was so worried. I'm going to teach you never to do that again. You are never leaving this house. You are grounded forever. He envelops him in his arms and loves him. He loves him. This is the God that we need to see clearly. He's calling us not to do more, but to be with him more. He wants us to come to him. He's a God of love. He loves you so much. He he desires to have you next to him. He seeks you out. He spends day and night searching for you. He calls you. He practically screams your name because he wants you so much to be with him. He loves you. He wants you in his family. And I know for me, so often I get wrapped up in trying to get close to him in different ways. I will do more, I will say more, I will witness more. But I know it's not, even, it's not coming from here. It's not an overflow. What I need to do first is go near to him. And then out of that, a desire to share my faith will come. Out of that, a kindness will come. Out of that, goodness will come. Out of that self you know unselfishness will come out of that will come a desire to know him to open this word because i'm so desperate to know more of this father who loves me so let's just spend some time now responding to the love of god because he calls us to come to him he loves us